Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. Again, I have this aversion to stability, which I think makes me super ripe for, for owning a startup. But my, my perception is, is if you look at the world and you think it's perfect, then keep doing exactly what you're doing. But if you look at the world and you're not happy with what it looks like, or in fact, right now, for instance, if you're incredibly unhappy with what it looks like, you and everybody else are doing something wrong. And so if you continue doing what you're doing, you are feeding a system that you know and accept is not right or could be better. So I think it was always an urge to kind of create something different. Hi, friends, and welcome back to another amazing episode of At the End of the Tunnel. So this week's interview is with someone who has personally inspired me along my journey toward minimalism. She's the brainchild behind the zero waste movement called Trash is for Tossers, and her name is Lauren Singer. So an interesting side note about Lauren. When I first went nomadic in 2018 and I downsized an entire lifetime's worth of stuff that I had accumulated, I knew about Lauren and her story kept popping up into my mind, reminding me that anything I might be tempted to just mindlessly throw away could always have a second life with someone else. You may have heard of her story floating around the internet. She's the woman who's been living essentially waste-free, which means she doesn't consume anything that's packaged or single-use. Crazy, right? And within the first five years of her eco-friendly journey, all of the waste that she produced could fit into a single mason jar, which she would carry around to the talks that she gave. So in this interview, Lauren tells the story of how she became an activist at an early age and how that led to her environmental studies in college and how that led to her starting her YouTube channel, which is called Trashes for Tossers. And then later she found herself running four waste-free companies while trying to maintain balance and normalcy in her own life. I really can't wait for you to hear this incredible story behind her story. So without further ado... I want to welcome to the podcast, Miss Lauren Singer. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. As always, I love to start these conversations talking about childhood. And so I was wondering if you can think back to your childhood, what toy or activity do you remember enjoying the most? Uh, I don't want to sound like a huge cliche. <laughs> But I spent a lot of time outside by myself, a lot of time outside. I was really lucky to live alongside a reservation when I was younger. And I, I lived in many different places growing up, but one in particular is I would just go and play in the woods by myself or go 
and play, you know, in the rocks by myself. And I would pretend that I was living off of the land. And my favorite books were like Swiss Family Robinson and the Boxcar Children. And so I just had this internal pull to just be outside and play all the time. So I guess the trees and the rocks and the sticks <laughs> were my toys. <laughs> Where were I'm you? I'm such a cliche. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was born in New York City. And then I moved to, I lived in Texas for a little while randomly. And then I, I moved back to Westchester in, in New York and lived a bunch of different places there. What was that about? Why were you guys moving around so much? Marriages and not marriages, those things that we cannot control, <laughs> the choices <laughs> our parents make. Yeah. Was that fun for you moving around so much or did you find it to be taxing? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think mm -hmm. sometimes I'm really grateful for the ability I have now to be incredibly adaptable and really unfazed by, by change. And, and seem to, to kind of have this ability to glide through it pretty well. But I think that also makes me averse to stability. So I think I did really love meeting so many new people and living so many new places and experiencing so many different worlds that I wouldn't have otherwise. But who knows? I am where I am. So grateful for it nonetheless. Studious young person or what was your relationship like with your schooling, your education? When I was younger, I prioritized learning a lot more. I loved learning and, and school and learning was always something that came really easily to me. I did really well in school as a child. And as I got older, I just didn't see the point as I got to the tail end of, of high school. I found myself being much more passionate about issues in the world. I was, I was protesting a lot. I was starting a lot of clubs. I was traveling to different places to volunteer or build houses. And I, I just didn't really see the point in structured education towards the end of high school. And I also struggled a lot with depression. That made me just disengage from just about everything. So when I got to college, I really wasn't, I didn't care much about education. I've never been very good at doing things that I don't want to do. I always have really followed my gut and my mom really enforced that in me as a child, she always said there's nothing in life that's permanent except for death. And then now you can say taxes and, and STDs. But, <laughs> but it was something that was really nice because I always had the freedom to follow my, my gut. And I've always been pretty connected to my gut. So I, I always just did what I, what I felt fed me as opposed to what I felt I structurally had to do. Where did you inherit this activism spirit? I don't know. I remember when I was some of the first memories that I had of of this like deep empathy that I feel I almost feel like sometimes it's it's like a crippling empathy because it it really like hurts me sometimes to the point where I I I find myself against a wall of inaction was I remember there was a school dance in the 5th grade. And there was a student in my class who had physical disabilities and we were at the dance and a bunch of kids were making fun of her. And I remember her running into the bathroom and crying. And I had never felt in my life before something so wrong and so mean. And I think from there, I just, I just felt like 
it was important to follow that feeling and, and be present for people who experience things like this. Were you inspired to help her in any way that evening or how did that? Unfold? I was just there with her and I resonate really deeply with that. There are so many people that don't even have access to so many opportunities because of things like learning disabilities. So, you know, I, I've always been really aware of that. And how did you understand depression when you were younger? Because obviously there's a, you know, full context as an older person, you, you realize, hey, half these people are depressed in this room. But as a younger person, did you feel like you were the only one or how did you, how did you relate to it? I don't think I had the ability to relate to my own depression when I was in it. I didn't even really know that I was in it, which I think is one of the dangers of being depressed. It's often hard to see outside of your, your own life and your own self. But I, I did a lot of art back then. So I think through painting and, and the things that I was expressing creatively, I was able to see that like, okay, something's, something's a little, a little dark in here. And, and I remember just sitting in class feeling like everybody hated me and was just looking at me and judging me. And I, I just felt like the world was against me, which is another, you know, a byproduct of, of depression. And yeah, it was, it was super tough. But you were functional. You weren't like in bed for days at a time or anything like that. I would go to school and then I would come home and get into bed. Um, I wasn't really eating very much and I watched a lot of Food Network <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and and just painted a lot. And and that was that was pretty much it. Was it a Van Gogh type of thing where the painting actually was the one reprieve that you had? I actually think painting is one of the reasons I fell into a depression. I think I'm a very strong-willed, controlling person. And, and have a lot of power over my my brain. And I think I'm able to lock up a lot of emotions and feelings. And then painting all of a sudden, because you dip, you use a different side of your brain, I feel like it, while you're utilizing the creative mind, it almost like unlocks the controls that you have over rational and emotional thinking. And to me, I think that unlocked and catalyzed like everything that I had been feeling and accumulating over 18 years it allowed it to just come out so it was a, it was a form of therapy then it sounds like a little bit yeah I, I definitely think so What about the activism? Who, who, how are you funding these trips to get around to do these various protests around the so, country? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, 
you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108 day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. I grew up in a zip code, definitely of privilege, and I'm really grateful to have been able to use that privilege to do things outside of my own life. I think sometimes it's really easy to to not, especially if you have privilege, it's really easy to cut out the rest of the world. But I started student clubs and, and raised money through that. And I always had a, a father who was really supportive of me going and pursuing my passions. He he asked very little of me. And when I when I was passionate about something and wanted to try something, which was quite often, he always engaged it which I feel incredibly lucky to have had a a parent like that. I guess that's also one of the benefits, side effects, I should say, of when your parents kind of split off and, you know, you're not spending, I'm assuming you didn't spend full time with your father. I did actually. I lived with my father full time uh, from 13 on. Got it. Okay. But again, he, he was... He worked full time from five in the morning until you know six at night when he got home, and I was already you know in my room by then. So so we didn't see each other that much, and I just feel so grateful that no matter what it was I wanted to try or do, whether it was you know fly to Costa Rica to to volunteer or to you know try to take DJ classes, he supported me, and I think I've always had the freedom and the privilege to to try things and fail and change my mind, which I have the most gratitude for. So I have two questions about that. Number one is, do you remember one of your first fundraisers was, you said you did fundraisers mm-hmm. in school. What, what, what kind of fundraisers were you talking about? Were you selling cookies? Were you going around knocking on doors? I definitely sold a lot of baked goods. I, I am very good <laughs> at making Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> that was that. I mean, I did runs. I did bake sales. I did at like parent teacher night. I would just table. I would do just like going around to your family kind of Girl Scout style. This was, this was really pre-social media as well. So you couldn't just use like the power of the internet to, to raise money in a really efficient and effective way, which is a beauty of the internet that we have now. So it really was grassroots. And how much would you? How much would you raise? How? What are we talking? Like a couple oh, hundred gosh. bucks? I don't. I don't remember. I mean, I funded my own trips to Nicaragua and to and you know raised a lot of money for Darfur back in the day. That was that was a big topic of conversation, and you know attended a lot of the protests for that. What else? I mean, I was definitely not like a prodigy kid that's designing things at the age of 10, you know, doing something prolific. It was really, it was really wholesome (laughs) and really grassroots. Who kind of inspired you to think that way to just raise the money? Like, how did you, what were you modeling those fundraisers after? 
Sorry, my dog is chewing her toy. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. We can add that into this. That's a part of the quarantine podcast this conversation. Is, this is Rose. She's she's very sweet, but gets really jealous when I'm not paying attention to her. Who did I model it after? Honestly, I don't know. I, I don't remember. I think it was just okay. something that I that I did. And that leads me to my second question. When you would go to Nicaragua or Costa Rica or come up with these different plans, how much preparation would you do beforehand or would you just like show up and just kind of hope it all worked out? Where were you on that spectrum? Yeah, I a lot of preparation. So, you know, usually, I mean, not usually, always, there was a, a partner on the ground in the place that we were going who who understood how how the place worked. And, you know, and now I know that there's as well, a lot of issues with going and doing these volunteer trips and that there's a lot of privilege and negative outcomes that, that come with it. But at the time it felt right. And I didn't know any better. And again, there wasn't the internet to democratize information in the way that we have now, you know, we, we were all still like in the process of learning from one another. And in my little bubble, like it felt, it felt right. But yeah, there was always an organization on the ground helping to identify the needs of the communities. There was an organization that I worked with at the time that I don't know what they're doing now or if they're still good or or what's happening. But, you know, in Nicaragua, it was this organization called Bridges to Community, and they would partner with community members who would be paid to build houses for other community members. And it was kind of a, a, a ground up approach. They would identify who was in the most need of a home. And then the deed would be put in the name of the woman. Because if it was put in the name of the man, uh, oftentimes the man would leave the wife and children and and, and take the home. So so it was wow. a, it was a pretty cool program. Right, sounds very forward thinking. I love that. That well, that must have created a very impressive college application <laughs> to have all these different volunteering opportunities and fundraising, and and you landed at NYU. Yes, I. You know, it's interesting. I really didn't want to go to college. I I didn't see the point. I didn't have a direction or anything that I really wanted to do. You know, like I, like I said, I, I wasn't a really, I wasn't like my, my full self at the end of high school. So I didn't have the time to really prepare for what I wanted to do or or what I wanted to accomplish in life. And so I, I had actually really wanted to go to Nepal and volunteer instead of go to high school my senior year, which that was the one the one place my my dad put his foot down and said no. So, you know, in retrospect, sometimes I'm grateful for that. Did he have a reason why? He just believes in education and and I fully understand that and agree. And I am so grateful for the experience that I had in college. And I I think when you're 17, you kind of don't know, you know, but you don't know. I think there's a lot of like beautiful optimism and freedom and thinking when you're when you're younger, but there's also a lot of things that you don't realize and understand about how the world works. Um, at least for me, I, I can't say you because that's that's not fair. But for me, that was definitely true. And so I wanted to just go away, like anywhere that wasn't my life. And I wanted to be uncomfortable and I wanted to experience something new. So NYU had this program. Actually, so what I really wanted to do, I applied early, early decision to Tufts University because I knew that they had a 100% acceptance rate into the Peace Corps, which is what I wanted to do, actually. <laughs> um, and I, I, I didn't get in to Tufts, which was a really big blow. But then I, I learned about this program through someone that I worked with. I worked in retail through high school. And one of the, the guys that I worked with, he got into NYU to do this program where you could go abroad your first year. 
And so I ended up applying to that program, getting in and, and going, moving to France and without speaking any French or anything, but just getting on a plane and kind of going. What was the desire to be uncomfortable in those ways? I don't, I have, I all, I still have that feeling. I think it just goes back to childhood. I mean, I'm, I've had enough therapy to, <laughs> to kind of see that. You know, I, I think, again, I have this aversion to stability, which I think makes me super ripe for, for owning a startup. But, you know, I, I think my, my perception is, is if you look at the world and you think it's perfect, then keep doing exactly what you're doing. But if you look at the world and you're not happy with what it looks like, or in fact, right now, for instance, if you're incredibly unhappy with what it looks like, you and everybody else are doing something wrong. And so if you continue doing what you're doing, you are feeding a system that you know and accept is not right or could be better. So I think it was always an urge to kind of create something different. And did you see yourself living a life of activism indefinitely? Or do you think eventually- You mean like talking about trash for a living? No, <laughs> no, no, no. What did you see yourself kind of doing after your you know early 20s and things like that when you just envisioned? No, I, I, I never envisioned anything for myself. I, I kind of still don't. I intend to have my company package free and simply co be successful. I tend, you know, I intend to have a positive impact on the planet. My North Star is large scale positive environmental impact, but I've kind of just trusted in myself and, and life to hand me and, you know, through my work of, of course, of getting there, but to, to find and encounter the opportunities to, to make that happen. So now you find yourself in this environmental studies program. Yes. What are you learning? It's actually funny. When I was <laughs> when I was 15, my cousin took me to a bar <laughs> in New York City. She dressed me up and put makeup on me. And I think it was the Thompson Hotel. We went to the top of the Thompson Hotel and Jessica Simpson was there. And she was like, we're going to drink and we're going to go out for the first time because you, you need to do this. We're in New York City and, and you know, rite of passage kind of a thing. But she's like, don't talk. <laughs> Just don't talk to anyone because if you talk, they're going to know how old you are. And this guy came up to me and he's like, hey, kitty cat. I remember this so clearly. It was so gross. Um, he's like, what's your name? And I didn't answer. And he's like, oh, you're such a shy kitty cat. It was, it was disgusting, actually. <laughs> and... And he's like, what do you do? Who are you? And my cousin jumped in and she's like, she's a journalism major at NYU. And from there, that was the, the alias that I had. That was my identity that I used through high school and, you know, going to clubs in the city, whatever. That was my, that was what I said I was. And I actually think it turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy and manifested <laughs> into reality because I ended up going to NYU and my first major that I declared was journalism. Wow. <laughs> but I hated journalism. I hated it. I hated it so much. I think I got a D or maybe even an F in journalism. And I had to take a science class and I took environmental science. And I think the rest was kind of just history from there. Is that when you learned about hydrofracking? I learned about fracking, was it 2010 or 2011? I was in a student group or no, I don't think I was in a student group yet. I went to a documentary screening with a friend of mine from the environmental studies program. And it was Gasland by Josh Fox. And I just cried uncontrollably. The injustices of fracking 
and how like most of every injustice, how it affected the BIPOC community or, or mostly just people of color um, and indigenous people um, and black people. Actually, yeah, so the BIPOC community <laughs> the most and and how it affected poor people and how it was just a systemic fucked up, like so, so, so fucked up practice that took advantage of of people that were vulnerable. And to me, that kind of stems back to the activism that I did as, you know, when I was super young, that was mostly people centric and not necessarily environmentally centric. And I just thought it was like the most fucked up thing ever. And I was like, why is everybody not talking about this? Why is everybody in the world not talking about how awful this is? And I met Josh and you know, from from there started an organization at NYU called Students Against Fracking and dedicated kind of the next two years of my life to protesting against the oil and gas industry from, you know, lobbying in DC to to going up to Cornell and doing like student organizing to creating protests um, at NYU and yelling at buildings and doing, you know, Facebook groups and everything that I could to raise awareness about fracking. Now, did you find your people at NYU to kind of be as passionate as you are about those things? Or did you find it was hard? It was like pulling teeth to get these people to to feel as passionate. I had a really amazing group of people that, that helped definitely, you know, and, and I met my first boyfriend through that. He was not at NYU. He was, he was much older, but I met my first boyfriend through that. I, I met a community. I, you know, my, my best friend that I met through that actually just recently passed away, but I met some of my favorite people in the entire world through my work against fracking. It sounds like a pretty full on commitment. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't imagine myself learning about fracking and not doing something about it. That's kind of a theme though, up until that point, right? <laughs> I mean, everything <laughs> you you were passionate about, you kind of had to make the time for it and do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. That feels, that feels right. So before that, your lifestyle, I guess, was like everyone else's where you're kind of just going about and using plastic and stuff and not really thinking much about mm-hmm. fracking and the oil and gas industry, right? Yeah, not at all. I was as consumeristic as, as one could be fast fashion and online shopping really wasn't a thing yet, which is interesting. But yeah, just just... just Consumeristic, typical American consumer. What were some of the first things that changed when you became aware of that? I mean, fracking was a, a, and being involved in the grassroots activism movement was really interesting for me because I started realizing then the difference between fighting for a cause, believing in a cause, and living in alignment with a cause. I saw all of these activists, and this is not to place judgment on them. It's just an observation that I, I saw. And, you know, also keep in mind that I myself was one of these people who, you know, all these people were fighting against the oil and gas industry, but I would go to their house for dinner and there'd be plastic forks and plates. There'd be people smoking cigarettes. There'd be, you know, people actively contributing to their, the thing that they were most opposed to, you know, me sitting there wearing my fast fashion made of synthetic material. All of us were, fighting against this behemoth, the oil and gas industry, but at the same time, we were actively subsidizing them. You know, it's like going after big tobacco while also smoking cigarettes. And I, I realized it's like utter hypocrisy in in myself. And, you know, again, 
some people have different motivations for doing things. And you can say bringing awareness is doing the work in a lot of ways. But I, I just thought it was it was super interesting to just see the the misalignment between passion and action when it comes to living your own values. And, and I realized that most of the blame in grassroots activism was, was placed on other people. Um, you know, it was these big businesses and these politicians and, you know, and I, I, I kind of, I felt really averse to the otherizing because I think for me, I've always been someone who has been friends or like been around people who, who have kind of been the underdogs. And I think just like otherizing isn't necessarily healthy. I think it's important to understand all sides of a situation. And so I spent some time and I started getting involved in, in government. And actually, my, my second major was politics because I wanted to know, like, are these people really that bad? And I started working for the government um, and volunteering for the mayor's office when Bloomberg was still mayor and, you know, other other things in, in government. And I realized that, like, these are people who really care. But the system is just so fucked up and bureaucratic that no one can get anything done it was kind of this moment where I was like, okay, the system is bureaucratic. Big businesses don't care. Um, and if they do, again, they're so large, they're too big to fail or too bureaucratic to change. So what do I have control over? You know, why am I trying to change something that can't or won't or doesn't want to? The one thing that I have control over, and again, this goes back to something my mom, my mom always said, she's like, the only thing you really have control over is yourself. And <laughs> my mom is very wise. But I started asking myself, you know, how can I actually contribute or not contribute to this, to this problem? And that really led me to my realization around my, my personal waste. It sounds like your mother was indeed wise and gave you some great, great insight. Did you also have another mentor that was helping, helping to guide you at this time? For instance, you mentioned volunteering at the mayor's office. Like, how did you know that that was something that you should do? Like, who who were who you talking to about all this? No one, really. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really, it, that was always my least favorite question on tests. <laughs> or, on, or not on tests, on, on college applications. You know, it's like, who's your hero? Who's your mentor? Like, I don't know. So I, I think I would always just lie at like Google, like, who's an inspiring person? And like, put them put them on my application. Because honestly, I don't know. I think I've been inspired by and motivated and supported by works of many people and the efforts of many people, but a lot of them aren't, you know, well known or anything. You know, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was about the, the use of DDT written in the 1960s was really a huge catalyzer for me pursuing environmental science and being interested in it. But yeah, I just kind of try things. I'm inspired by people who see problems in the world and decide to do something about it. Okay. And you've told a story about a girl who brought in a bunch of plastic in one of your, uh, one of your capstone classes. Yes. So I think this is the, the judgy, like not as great side of me. <laughs> and, and then the passive aggressive part was there was this girl who we had been in environmental studies together for four years. And I, I still to this day wonder if she has, um, realize that it's her or if she even knows that I exist anymore. Um, I was but, wondering the same thing yeah. when I was listening to this. <laughs> well, I, I guess I have a lot to thank her for. So thank you for, for the trash that you produced, which motivated me to change myself. Yeah. So she would bring every day this big plastic bag with a plastic clamshell full of food and a plastic fork and knife and a bag of chips. And she'd eat her dinner every night and throw it in the trash in the middle of this environmental 
studies course in our fourth year of studying environmental studies in the last semester of college to get our degree in environmental studies. And I was like, what is happening? What are you doing? Why are you making this much trash? And every single class you do it. And I would just be like bewildered. And at this point I was making little changes in myself. Like I'd bring my coffee in a mason jar and people would be like, that's weird. But realizing that, that I was so angry by the choice that this girl was making, I went home one day and, and opened my fridge to make dinner and realized that every single thing that I had was packaged in plastic, like every single thing in my fridge. And I think most people can probably relate to that right now, especially now during the pandemic. But my condiments, and my pre-washed greens and my eggs and my milk and juice and everything. And then in my kitchen, my utensils were made of plastic and my cutting board and my single use K cups and my, you know, plastic water filter and in my bathroom, all my beauty products and my cleaning products and in my closet, all of my fast fashion made of synthetic chemical or synthetic fabric. And, and I realized, oh my God, I've been supporting the oil and gas industry for two years while at the same time have been fighting against the oil and gas industry for two years. And I, it was just the most hypocritical, absurd thing. And it, I realized that I never looked at myself or or saw myself as part of the problem. And when I realized I was, I had to do something about it. So I found my way to zero waste. So now you have a mentor. Now you have this woman, Bea, right? You've you've come across her information. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? She has a blog called The Zero Waste Home. And I saw that blog. And at the time, I was kind of doing a lot of the things that were in line with the zero waste lifestyle. So I was, you know, making my own cleaning products and my own beauty products at the time. But then I saw the concept of zero waste and was like, whoa. (laughs) I thought that like not using plastic and making some toothpaste was everything that I could do to live sustainably. And then realizing that I didn't have to make any trash was like a holy shit, this is amazing moment. And so just that catalyzed this desire to to talk about it. And there was, I mean, I'm so grateful to have learned about zero waste from her. And then was like, okay, this is amazing, but she's a mom with two kids and she lives in California in this big house. And I'm 21 and I'm still getting drunk all the time and I'm in college and I don't have very much money and you know I want to do all these things so I'm going to like take this concept and see if I can make it work for me here and that's really where trashes for tossers came from and when I met Bea for the first time she was awesome what are the tenets of zero waste there's no packaged foods i remember right and yeah i mean zero waste is is a goal it's an aspiration it's a thing that we can strive it's not something that we have to be or you know i really believe that it is pretty easy to take small steps to reduce waste it doesn't have to cost anything and again this is people in positions of, of privilege and who have the ability to to think this way which a lot of people don't so i always think it's important to to preface with that but when i started living th- this way i saved so much money i decluttered my life i i consumed less and so outside of the environmental benefits that I was realizing, there were all of these externalities like eating healthier, 
saving a ton of money and just having more mental clarity because I was just so decluttered. So there were all these benefits that I, that I didn't even realize. And, and because of that, it was, it was really motivating. And I was like propelled to talk more about this and write more about it just because, you know, when something makes you feel good, you, you want to spread the word. If you've ever met a vegan, they can attest to that. (laughs) How did you meet Bea? Talk, Talk about that experience. I had a boyfriend actually that I met through Instagram. I've, I've, met, my, I've met a couple of boyfriends through Instagram now. And we, we were in San Francisco and he had a restaurant in San Francisco and Bea's from there. And, and then we just decided to connect and we met at his restaurant and talked for, I think like six hours. I missed my flight home. And yeah, that was, that was just kind of it. She was just a cool mom deciding to do something really positive. And, and spread the word. And, and I mean, that to me is what an inspiring person is. Like I said, it's someone that sees a problem in the world and does something about it. Did you talk to her about starting Trashes for Tossers? I feel like we talked about everything. And Zero Waste was just like a tiny blip. I think when you have, when you meet someone and you have these like commonalities, like you, you kind of know that you're on the same page and then you want to talk about all the other things to see where else you, you have alignment. So so we just talked about everything and she was so cool and so nice. And what was Trash is for Tossers in your mind? What was it going to to be? I mean, first and foremost, Zero Waste was always for me. It was Trash is for Tossers was my way of, of kind of documenting my journey to reduce waste, to, to really hold myself accountable first and foremost. I didn't start living a zero waste lifestyle for other people. I did it for myself to align with my values for environmental sustainability, to create a more sustainable and just future. And I was living in alignment with my values to, to do that. Not because someone told me to, or because of anything. It was really just like, I feel this need to, to understand what I care about, what my values are and, and constantly reevaluate if I'm living in alignment with them every day. And, and that's a practice that I, that I still do regularly. And Trashes for Tossers really started because I, I realized that I was this person who cared deeply about sustainability and realized that there was a way that I could align with it more. And if I felt that way, I always feel like if there's a problem, if I have a problem, there's probably someone else who has that problem too. And so I wanted to put it out there in the world. And I was so sick of how depressing environmentalism was and learning about environmental studies. I mean, I cried almost every day in college, just learning about fracking and fossil fuels and, you know, systemic racism and all of these problems that, that come as a result of, of anthropogenic climate change. And it really fucked me up and made me so depressed. And when I tried to talk about things from the lens of this, like scariness and all these problems, people were really averse to what I was saying. In fact, they'd like actively not want to see me because it makes people feel like they're doing something wrong. And and of course they are, but but that's in my perspective, not the most effective way to approach a problem. So so Trashers for Tossers was my way to live my values, put what I was doing out there, talk about how great it made me feel. And if someone was interested, they could come and, and have all the information they'd need in a way that felt approachable. Okay, so just to to understand where where this is in the timeline, you had finished college at this point, and you were working as a sustainability manager for the city. 
I started Trashes for Tossers when I was still in college. So in 2012. So, and it was a blog. Yes, it was a blog, just a blog. Mm -hmm. And how often would you post on your, on your new blog? I don't remember. Pretty frequently. I was pretty into it. Yeah. (laughs) I was really excited about it. I got a camera. I had a boyfriend who made videos. It was, it was pretty, it was kind of like our, it was our thing. Okay. And, and what were some of the other options? You trashes for tossers. This is a really interesting way to kind of summarize your movement. Was that the first thing that came to mind? Like, oh, we're going to call it trashes for tossers. I I owned like 75 domains. I am like a domain (laughs) hoarder. No, I was actually, I, I love, I've always loved Bravo, which is a disgusting part of me, (laughs) but there's something about reality TV that I think exposes like a really interesting part of society which I, I, I find fascinating. And I was watching Bravo and Andy Cohen, who I, I love, was interviewing this British girl and she said the word tosser and it just kind of clicked. <laughs> <laughs> that was after I've, I've tried to make puns and iterations of the word like waste and less and all of these zero and then trashes for tossers just kind of stuck. Wow. Was she, was she referring to tossers in, in the environmental sense? No, definitely not. I think she was using it as like a British slang as as it is. Oh, fun. So it became your own thing then. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And then British people were like, do you know what this means? And I was like, yes, I know it's not. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> but it's an alliteration. And, and here we are. Right. Did you think it was too long? Trashesfortossers.com? No. And so then it's something you're doing on the side. I'm assuming it's not like a mm-hmm. full-time job. You you end up getting a job and then you have a come to Jesus moment where you decide I'm going to quit my job and start to do this full-time. So there's a lot of like weird in-between time after college <laughs> that I don't really talk about. But when I graduated from college, I actually didn't have a job. I had been working for a skincare company that kind of led me on and, and, had me believe that I was going to have a job when I graduated. And then I didn't because it's it's honestly the nature of startups. And I, I so see that now. And I was like angry in the past, but I, I understand how startups are, are a very complicated beast and things just happen and change all the time. And so I didn't know how to make money. And, and so I started like going to secondhand stores and curating and merchandising stuff and selling it online. And that, that kind of floated me through. And then I got a consulting job at a this company that did auditing and retrofitting for these local laws in New York City that helped to rate energy efficiency for for large buildings, which is super random. I was looking at like 50,000 lines spreadsheets and inputting energy and like utility data. It was it was mind numbing. And then I had been waiting because the government works very slow. I had interviewed for the job that I initially that I inevitably took you know, like six months before. <laughs> and then I finally got a phone call. It was like, we'd like to hire you for this job. And I, I quit that same day and then started working for the government. And the blog was happening the entire time? The whole time. Yes. What, what kind of traction were you getting on the blog during that time? I don't know. I think like 20 people followed me and like most of them were my family members and friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I was, I was, I was nothing special or no one important. And had you been shooting those videos where you're teaching people how to make lotion and how to make toothpaste at that point? You and that your boyfriend? was my boyfriend. That was my boyfriend. He taught himself how to use a, a camera. He was pretty amazing. Uh huh. Well, whose kitchen was that you were in? Because that looks like a really nice apartment. 
mine. Yeah. That's, that's my, my current apartment. I've lived here for eight years. All right. And so then talk about deciding to quit your job and start this, this company teaching other or selling the products that you were, you were making. Yeah. So I, I hated my job so much in government. I was so unhappy and it was really just another example of, of like me joining the system, thinking I could change it from the inside and being like slapped in the face by the reality of bureaucracy and government. And nobody cared about what like a 21 year old girl was saying about, you know, electric vehicle conduit or, you know, swapping one material for one that was circular. Like they didn't care. They were working on 10 year projects. They were clocking in and out, probably had like other jobs going on and they just didn't care. And it, it just felt really shitty. But I stayed there so I could make some money. And I was really lucky that, that it was a job that paid well. And at the same time, I was running Trashes for Tossers and, and started getting this question from people about the products that I was making. And they, they would say in the comments, you know, these, these few people that were following me were like, I love the products that you're making yourself. But, you know, it was put in some not nice ways. Like you clearly don't have a life or like <laughs> friends. Uh, <laughs> So how do I get these products but not have to make them myself? And I started, you know, really looking at the consumer landscape and and realized that there are products that are bad and there are products that are less bad, but there are not products that were truly, truly good. And that's a problem, right? It, it is my and continues to be my fundamental belief that access to sustainable products and, and a sustainable lifestyle is a basic human right. We are nowhere near having that be equitable or or accessible for all people but but it is a fundamental belief of mine and one that I am working really hard every day to to work towards and my first my that's kind of where the idea for simply co came from my first company i was making this laundry detergent that was three ingredients it was safe it was effective it was as simple as the one you could make yourself because it was the one that i was making myself and i felt like people had a right to products like that and the right to choose products like that so i I launched a Kickstarter and on the same day I quit my job and I flew to California to go on a road trip. And that day, I think this it was the same day, 24 hours later, I had hit my goal and, and then I had a company. You exceeded your goal by a lot. Yeah. I, I came up with $10,000 because it seemed like the most money I could think of. Like it seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. There was, I backed into that 0%. I had no idea what anything cost or how to do anything. Yeah. And then I, I had this $40,000 and that I raised $42,000 and I had to make thousands of jars of detergent by hand, <laughs> which was how did, crazy. How do you know how to do that? The Kickstarter? Because now there's like a whole oh. strategy around it, but you were just kind of winging it. I mean, I had some friends that I had met through just like living zero waste and, and I was so much, I was so active in the community as well. And I was going to like every event. So I was meeting everyone and I met a few companies that had started through Kickstarter. And I just, I watched every single video that I could. I watched the ones that weren't effective. I watched the ones that were, I decided, you know, what was important, what, like how important humor was, how important sound bites were. And I kind of developed a script just based on looking at everything that was out there. And your boyfriend shot it, I'm assuming. He did. Yes. We were actually broken up at that point. We had, we had broken up, <laughs> but he promised right. me he would film it and he knew how 
important this was to me and how much I hated my job. And he was incredible and, and filmed it for me. Wow. He's one of your angels. He is definitely one of my angels, for sure. And so you're making all of this laundry detergent by hand in your apartment, <laughs> thousand, a thousand jars. Thousands, <laughs> plural. Yeah, no, it was a shit show. <laughs> it was a total shit show. Try, oh trying God. not to have any waste, right? <laughs> yeah. Because um, that's Not the idea. having any waste. There's three ingredients in, in the laundry detergent. So there's Castile soap, there's baking soda, and there's washing soda. Washing soda, you get by baking baking soda. So I had these like glass Pyrex trays and I would, I had these like rice bag sized bags of baking soda and I would put in batch after batch after batch and I would bake baking soda to make washing soda. So not only was it like, it wasn't just like taking ingredients and combining them. I, I had to like actually synthesize them and change them. And, and I was hand grinding soap. I mean, my my mom still to this day won't use the original jars of laundry detergent that I gave her because I ground the soap with my with my own hands. <laughs> and she's like, Your hands were so cut up and blistered. She's like, I couldn't oh I couldn't bear God. to use it. Did you hire people to help you? I had people that volunteered to help, like friends, family, and interns, honestly. I did not know any better. And through trashes for tossers, people were just like, I wanna help. And so we were sitting, you know, at my dining room table making dryer balls and grinding soap and packing boxes. Again, like I I was just so lucky. And so this became Simply the Simply Company. Mm-hmm. And did you was it um was the thing something you were looking for investment with or you just kind of reinvested the Kickstarter money? I didn't I didn't know what investors were. I didn't know what venture capital was or investors or anything and and so I just I just started kind of I was hand making it and and had my little website and was kind of doing it all super grassroots. And then I went on this trip actually and met these guys who helped me scale. They were like, Hey, how are you making this? We like the company. We think we can help you. And they got me set up with my first manufacturer. And I was like, Whoa, things can be easier. This is amazing. That's the facility in Ohio that uses solar power, right? To sustainably create stuff. I do not work with that company anymore. But there was a company in Ohio, yes. Mm -hmm. And what's happening with the mental health at this point? You mentioned depression as in high school. Are you is that something that you're managing? You're seeing therapists? What's going on? I was in and out of therapy my whole since like 13 onwards. It never really worked for me. But when I was in my job at the government, my ex-boyfriend introduced me to this audio series called Abraham Hicks. I, mm-hmm. Do you know Abraham Hicks? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Love Abraham Hicks. Yeah. And it, it really changed my life. And I think was was what pulled me out of my my depression and, and made me feel that I had the power to have control or that I that I did have the power always to have control over how I feel and what happens to me. That's powerful. It it really was. It changed my whole life. And I, I still set my intentions every day. You said you meet people on Instagram and stuff like that. When you meet a new person, right? Because obviously you're really passionate about this thing. And it's a very different 
lifestyle to normal what people are normally used to. Is there yeah. like a speech or a book that you recommend to people when they enter into your life in a close way to kind of give them a, a primer of what you're about? I mean, thankfully we have the internet. So people can, people Google and they see right away what it, like my current boyfriend, his friends call me trash girl. <laughs> so they all know. <laughs> trash girl. <laughs> So yeah, they they all know. And my dog is trash dog. And yeah, that is that is my life. Yeah, but but I think, you know, it it comes pretty quickly. If you're gonna date me, then you know, obviously if we make dinner, I'm gonna I'm gonna compost. Um and I, I kind of like secretly ninja new practices into people's lives. But but everyone that I've ever dated has been really excited about it and, and welcomed all of these things with open arms and just never had the, the catalyst. And, you know, the same with friends. A lot of my friends think about their waste now in a way that they had before even my family members, just because they're, they're, you know, by proxy, not because I ever asked any of them to do it. So you eventually began operating three companies. There's, yes. There's trash is for tossers is one. The Simply Company is another one. And then Package Free is it's my third? most recent child, yes. The most recent child, yeah. So that's a lot running I three guess, companies. I guess and, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned I've, – I've, I've read a couple of interviews. You mentioned that you reached a point, a breaking point with that where you had to make some adjustments. I mean, I feel like I reach those breaking points every day. Um, <laughs> especially now, like let's, let's try running three companies in a global pandemic. Go. <laughs> I have so much empathy for anyone taking on more than themselves right now, like parents, anyone that supports family members, anyone that, that is still, you know, going in and physically having to, to do work to support themselves and others for business owners, anyone that has anyone rely on them. I mean, it is a lot of pressure. How do you cope? What's your, what are your, some of your coping mechanisms? I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned yoga. You'd been doing some yoga. You'd started doing yoga. Yeah. Haven't, haven't done much of that lately. I'm, I'm more of a, I did yoga. I love yoga in person because I, I love the, even though like, I know it's a practice for yourself, but I love the competitiveness of it in my own head. So, so I really need to be around other people, which I can't do right now. So I've had a hard time finding exercise outside of like walking and, and biking. And do you have a relationship with meditation at all? Well, I dated Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's Jesse Israel, the founder of the big quiet. <laughs> so I was introduced to meditation through him and it's honestly something that I didn't find a relationship with. Mm -hmm. It happens. But I do, I feel like intention setting is, is really good for me. And I've been giving myself, you know, having a dog has been really amazing. I give myself time and space to, to just think freely, which I guess could be a form of meditation in a way to just like let my mind go where it wants to. So you're like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Final question about your journey. When I met you a few years ago, you gave a talk at one of my events, The Shine. Yes, that was really fun. Yeah. You have this mason jar where you carry, you have all of the stuff that you've discarded over the last however many years. I think it was eight years or 10 years or something. 
What gave you that idea to start collecting that? Because that's such a powerful symbol of zero waste. And I just thought it was just like, it was just perfect. And I'm just curious what the evolution of that was. I just wanted to see, you know, when, when you reduce your waste, there's all these things that you can see. Like we know water bottles are bad. We know trash, like plastic trash bags are bad or plastic bags, but but what are the things that we can't really see? Like what are this, these pieces of circumstantial trash or like little pieces of trash that make an impact, but not one that we would pay attention to? And, and that's really what I, what I decided to put my energy into documenting. So that's things like Band-Aids, which we actually now have a, a plastic-free solution for it at Package-Free. Things like the pieces of plastic that hold a price tag of clothing onto a piece of clothing. Festival bracelets packages from like, I don't know if you've ever had like instant yeast, those, those types of things. We would never think of those as like major problems. But if you, if you multiply that by the volume of what's created, it is a problem. You know, single use period products are one of the biggest forms of ocean trash. Microfibers are one of the biggest problems facing our oceans that people still really aren't talking about. And so the jar is really a way to, to just bring a light to things that people wouldn't see as an everyday problem, but that very much are problems. And if someone else was thinking of starting a movement or starting to follow their purpose or their passion and quitting their job and doing all those things, what's some words of encouragement or, or wisdom that you would offer to that person for their journey, for the journey that lies ahead? <sighs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've taken. I'm laughing at the so sigh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love everything that I'm doing so much, and I have to do it. It is everything that I am, but it is hard, and it's really hard right now. Like really, really hard, and it's lonely, and it's a lot of pressure, and. It's all so important and so necessary, but it's a lot. And I think I started doing something really small and I would suggest that's where, you know, I, I just think starting with yourself is the right way to go. You know, especially with starting a business, make sure that it's a problem that you're solving that you want to solve and then see if other people are interested in it as well. And really find that, like, as I say, in venture capital, like product market fit, because it's a big risk. It's a lot of work. Every day is really hard. It's really rewarding, but it's hard. And it's important to know, you know, why you're doing what you're doing and make sure you really believe in it and that you align with it because it's going to be what you have to stand for every day of your life go forward until maybe you change. But it's really important to know what you're doing why you're doing it, the impact that it's having, if it's really necessary in the world, and if your energy could add more value elsewhere. And that's why I always talk about what are your values? What do you care about? And are you living in alignment with them every single day? Because for me, if I had tried to start a company before asking myself that question, it would have been, it probably would have just been like so floaty and flighty and, and something that was so fleeting. But because I, I started taking action from a place of real understanding of myself and what I care about and what I value and the problems that I see in the world and, and, and the fact that I want to do something about them, I feel it, it gave me a much stronger foundation to fall back on when things don't go well. 
I love that. And I just want to, I like to end these interviews by offering a few reflections of my own, because although it may seem like we've come a long way from the days of playing with trees, rocks, and sticks <laughs> as your toys, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it has. I think, I think you've, you've actually come back around full circle. All to, I want to uh, do is play with the trees and rocks and get me out of here. <laughs> But you are. That's the thing. I've been to your store. I've been to the package-free store, and it's all pretty much trees, rocks, and sticks shaped <laughs> yeah. like toothbrushes and back scratchers and shavers and you know everything that we need to use on a day-to-day basis. So you've you've basically found a way to to integrate that into into an adult the adult existence, which is which is quite remarkable and, and impressive because. You know, when you were a child, noticing that and playing outside like that, you had to notice that there was an interconnection of life and that anything that happens in one area is going to affect everything in another area. And it just seems like that kept coming back up over and over again throughout your your childhood, your schooling, and then into what you're doing now. So I just want to acknowledge you for your commitment, for your bravery, for your willingness to be uncomfortable. I mean, that's that's like enlightenment level human living right there is that people who actually seek discomfort that's the foundation of anyone who's who's going to really live what they what they speak because that's 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 the game you know it's easy to talk but you're going to walk the talk and so you've been doing that for many years and you've inspired me when I went nomadic two years ago. I moved out and I got rid of forty years of stuff that I've been accumulating. Wow. And my challenge after meeting you was to not throw away anything. I wanted to give away. I literally gave away my jar of Vaseline. Like it was crazy. <laughs> I was giving away my toothbrush holder, stuff that I normally would have just thrown away without even thinking about it. I was like, no, let me clean it. And make it nice so that somebody can see the value in it. And I ended up only discarding about half a bag of trash at the very, at the very wow. end. And that's getting rid of a two-bedroom apartment again, t- you know, accumulating stuff for for four decades. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my interview with Lauren Singer. I think she's the quintessential example of somebody who has literally become the change they want to see in the world. And I hope that hearing her story inspired you to explore some simple ways that you can minimize consumption of single-use plastic, but more than that, how you can become the change that you want to see in the world. If you want to hear more stories like Lauren's, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and check out the archive. You'll find many other wonderful interviews with inspiring people who've started movements of all sizes against every kind of obstacle you can think about from mental health challenges to financial struggles, you name a challenge and somebody overcame it to start their movement. And what we find is that oftentimes, the obstacle itself plays a role in defining the movement that they start. And if you haven't done so already, please don't forget to rate the podcast. I know you hear podcasters say that all the time. Please rate my podcast. But the reason is because it only takes five seconds And it does so much to help other listeners discover these inspirational stories. So thanks in advance for that. And as always, you can find everything that Lauren and I discussed in the show notes, as well as a full transcript of our entire interview on my website, lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, consider signing up for my daily dose of inspiration email. 
every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time, I send out a short, uplifting, and shareable message that you can use for your own personal inspiration, or you can share it on your social media to help other people get inspired to start their day. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week with another story about someone who overcame all the odds to start their movement from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.